Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager podcast. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. My guest today is a man named Colin Woodward. He has a Ph.D. from LSU. He works at Stratford Hall, otherwise known as the Robert E. Lee House, up in Virginia. He is an author and a podcaster. He um, is also a music fan. His podcast is called American Rambler. I was aware of American Rambler long before I ever virtually encountered Colin. And anyway, so we hit it off um, before this podcast, obviously, uh, via Twitter. And I thought, well, he'd be an interesting podcast guest to have on because he said something that was pretty interesting. And that episode did not go according to plan. If you're a podcaster out there, you know you have that experience. I'm sorry, but you do. Um, anyway, so he was kind enough two years later to come on my show and talk, and we had a very interesting conversation. And, but I did want to say, in addition to the fact that he has a very interesting podcast called American Rambler, this is a rated not safe for work podcast. So if you have kiddos in the car or you're working in an office, that's what not safe for work means. Um, he says a couple words. I say a couple words. You know, words mom didn't teach us. Anyway, so this podcast was pretty fun, pretty great. Very collegial, I would say. So y'all enjoy it. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye-bye. Hi, everybody. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. This is the History Voyager. I'm here with the first guest I ever had that never made the internet, Colin Woodward. How on earth are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Let's hope this goes a lot better than it did before. <laughs> that was a technical issue. That was not anybody, you know, that was my technical issue. Sure. Not, not yours. But we were talking off air about how Twitter is amazing. <laughs> it, it can be when it's not ruining your life. Because, uh, I, I mean, I, I've had some bad weekends with Twitter, and it seems like Sunday is especially bad. And I've, I've tried to learn. Well, there's some things I've done. I've, I've, I've muted non-followers, which has been really helpful. But there's just some things I'm not going to weigh in on because you you you're just going to get destroyed if you if you speak wrong. So I try to avoid the fights, but sometimes it just happens. But and we were talking about the the convoy up in in Canada, and like I knew about that days before I saw anything on the nightly news. They just weren't covering it. And now I don't know if you've been following the thing at Harvard. You've been following that story? I followed it only because I'm embedded into academic Twitter for some reason. But Me what's too. going on with Harvard? Well, I don't know the details, but essentially there are a number of women, at least three, I think, who have been accusing this professor of sexual harassment. I guess it seems like they have a, a pretty strong case, but there were a bunch of 
very well-known professors, some of them at Harvard, who signed this letter of support for this guy who, I guess he's an Africanist, African, African history. Um, I'm, I can't remember his name. I think he's a white dude, but um, he has been accused of harassing students. And then all these professors, I think it was like 60 or 70, that signed this letter. And now a lot of them are walking it back because it's not looking good for this, this professor. Um, but it was uh, Henry, Henry Louis Gates signed it. Uh, Jill Lepore, who's pretty well known, she signed it. I think Drew Faust, whose work I really respect, is somehow involved because she was president of Harvard while this was going on, mm. I guess. Mm. But uh, I don't know the details, and I've been not weighing in because, like you, I, I just keep getting all this academic stuff dumped on me. I mean, and that's mostly who I follow, and that's a lot of the issues I am interested in. But now Twitter, the algorithm, it's like everything academia Everyone who can't get into a PhD program, I see their tweet. Everyone who gets rejected for a job, I'm like, Jesus, like, I can't. <laughs> I so, need to see all this. So, what I did was so here's my Twitter story, right? I started a blog. This is also my podcast story. I started a blog that was like, I played a guy, a movie reviewer that loved Game of Thrones and thought Game of Thrones is better than everything. And I would get bored of reviewing the movie and just talk about how Game of Thrones is better, but do it in the most crazy way possible. Right. And I don't know. I boosted it on Twitter and it went viral. Um, and then from there, like I got into basically an argument with a podcaster's wife who shall remain nameless. And that's when I realized I could add something to the Twitter to to the podcast world, right? Because I knew something that this person with a PhD didn't, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but Twitter to me is like this amazing connection tool. But here's the secret. You have to follow what I call normal people. Like PhDs yeah. are not normal people. They're, they're good people. <laughs> I know some. So they're, some they're, yeah. they're really good people. But they're not okay most people go on twitter to tweet about their team or their breakfast <laughs> yeah or whatever <laughs> well and that's the thing is like i i feel like i don't know there was a shift maybe in the last couple months where you know there are people you you just stop seeing in your twitter feed because you didn't like it or or whatever so i'm just getting like uh, 80% academic tweets right now. And sometimes it's interesting, but there are other things I would like to know about. And they're so contentious. I mean, it's, you know, it's Twitter, it's the internet, but like, I'm not an academic. So like, I, I don't really feel the need to weigh in on a lot of these academic issues. I, I feel like a lot of these people who are going into PhD programs or who are applying for graduate school, are are really misguided i think that the market is horrible i think if you've got a master's or you're ready to work just go work apply for jobs see what you can do so i i just mm. can't get enthusiastic about people that are applying right now i, th I think it's crazy if you, you can't afford it i mean if you can i guess that's great you get a scholarship or financial aid that's that's one thing but the, the job market's horrendous. I mean, even mm -hmm. if you get interviews, even if you do get something, 
you're going to be like glorified uh, entry level wages, whether it's, mm. you know, you're a mm. professor or you're an archivist or, or whatever. Um, so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty horrifying. And I think now is actually a much better job market than it was a couple of years ago or a year ago um, in the middle of the work. Well, we're still in yeah. COVID pandemic, but like <laughs> I am seeing jobs, I'm getting interviews, but I mean, you can go six months easily without getting an interview if you're applying regularly. So mm. that's what you're going to be up against. It's not going to get any better. I mean, and the other thing, it's like, it's the law of supply and demand. Right. If there's a if there's a lot of PhD people relative to the jobs, right? Yeah, and I I feel like there's when I because I'm on academic Twitter too, and I feel like there's there's a lady I follow, um, and because she's not here, I'm not gonna give out her handle, but she uses the term trauma bonding a lot for different for things not academic job related, but trauma bonding. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of people that are trauma bonded to the academic space just yeah. in how they tweet and how they talk about it. It's like, there's Definitely. a whole world out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think unfortunately people that are on Twitter, they often have an ax to grind or mm. yeah, they want to bond through the trauma. So I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, obviously not on Twitter who like academia and they're doing okay. Uh, Twitter's usually for complaining or, or whatever. Um, usually the, the academics I am reading, it's, it, it's going kind of rough for them in one sense or another, either mm. they've got problems with their students or they've got problems with the administration or, or whatever. Um, mm. It's, it's not, it's not easy. And, for all this, I don't even, again, I don't know exactly what's going on with Harvard. It sounds pretty bad, but like, mm. it's not going to change the culture there. It's just, it's, it's Harvard. They've got a hundred billion dollar endowment. <laughs> like they can afford to lawyer up and they'll deal with this just the way all these other institutions that have major scandals, um, mm. they'll, they'll, they'll pull through. I mean, a lot of people might be collateral damage with all this, but you know, don't don't think like this is going to break Harvard's bank or anything. Um, but I because, think the yeah, I think the thing about it isn't Harvard, although it is, and I don't want to minimize those people. But the thing is, like this happens everywhere. Yeah. Right. Like this happens. Right. No, this I mean, you, you look at the Catholic Church and and that huge scandal, mm. but. Mm. That's just it's just a matter of degree because you could take any kind of school, secondary school, community college, state university, whatever it is. Like mm. you have these kinds of problems, and I think there there are a lot of problems with advisors who are abusing their authority. Maybe not necessarily sexually harassing people, but just mm. being bastards. And everyone, I think, to some degree, not everyone, a lot of people have to put up with that to some degree. It's like any boss, you know, you're, you're the bosses that are just horrible people. Um, so mm. Academia is no different just because they're smart, because they have a PhD. They're not fundamentally yeah. different, a lot of them. And it might just be that they knew how to answer the test right, or they 
read the right book or put the right footnote in the paper and they figured out how to do that. I mean, there's a game to go into college. There's, there's sure. a game to go into college. You know, yeah, and it's, it's very, it, it, you can have kind of control over your destiny in that sense. You're a good student, mm. you do your apps. Well, you get into a good school and you can kind of just pursue that forever and having to deal with people in any kind of adult ways is secondary at best um Mm. and especially when you have a culture of do a lot of research publish books and keep your students at a distance uh at least that's that was my experience in grad school for for my advisor not all of them were like that some of them were were legit mentors but i heard things about professors that are that were inappropriate you know with with female students and i don't think anything happened with that i don't even know how bad it got but i'm sure there were there are plenty of things that could have been a, a major scandal but just didn't come to light then the thing like the thing that i think people need to realize is that so i i say this a lot that this stuff used to go on for sure but the difference is we got um, supercomputers in our pockets that we call smartphones, right? So right. you can tweet about it or you can – and something that I've been thinking about is – so TikTok is um, – if they could fig- – if somebody could figure out a way to make TikTok but for longer form videos, that's going to be a revolution because you'll see it. You'll see – this is the world. I don't, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I understand all that, but it doesn't really seem like it really helps with accountability all that much. I mean, you look at like cops with their cameras and stopping people Mm. or the no knock warrant, uh, that, that kind of deal. Like that's right on, right on camera. I mean, going back to, I mean, you remember the Rodney King riots and that was Mm. on videotape and those guys all walked, so like it, it sort of depends on your jury, depends on <laughs> the judge, but like the more we have phones and the more we're recording things, either people just continue to get away with it or, or there's just, the, the denial gets even deeper. I mean, there's a statistic that I need to look up because I keep citing it, but I don't remember exactly. But yeah. there was a, there was an Apple phone that came out. There was a specific kind of Apple phone that that hit like an iPhone. Okay. And that after that iPhone came out, Bigfoot sightings went way down. Like Bigfoot and UFO sightings went way down, but oh, yeah. police brutality um complaints went way up. And what it was was you had this camera that was really good in your pocket that you could film the world. Right. Right. And I really need to look up like which iPhone it actually was because it illustrates how recent this actually was in, in history. Okay. Cause it wasn't iPhone one or two or I forget which one it was. So at some level, there's a, a reality that people are recording with the new technology. So something like police brutality is a little bit more clear cut. You're saying, whereas if you think you saw Bigfoot and people look at the, 
<laughs> your phone footage is like, no, that's that's nothing. That's um, Stan. That's like Stan in a, in a suit, buddy. Come on, come on. Right, Stop right. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the power of denial though is is yeah. unbelievable. That you know people oh, can still sure. just do things in plain sight right now and, and get away with it. It's, it's kind of astounding. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm glad we have the technology in a, in a lot of respects. It's just a matter of is it going to be abused or not? And mm. now there's some crazy bill I think in Virginia where you know they want to have cameras in the classroom all the time and. So, uh, yeah, this this stuff never ends. So, but I'm on, I hate to use the term both sides, but but this is one of those issues that I could legitimately see both sides of that. Yeah. And you can too, because on the one hand, it's going to cut down on the, the abuse of the professors on students or students on professors. And on the other hand, you're right. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I, I it, mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, like time will tell with all this stuff because like, yeah, it, it depends on what the motive is. I mean, the motive in Virginia is that we don't want teachers teaching Marx or critical race theory. So we want them on a camera every minute of the day. Uh, whereas if it was a safety issue, that's another thing, you know? So I think it's you have you have to look at what what motives are driving people. Uh, I I don't I don't not necessarily mm. a, a proponent of cameras in the classroom because where does that end? I mean, yeah, you're a college, you're just a private a state school, like you have to do it with a big brother watching you. I mean, that's that's not cool, but but it, I, I get like, but even then, like when you say teaching marks. <laughs> I mean, how are no you going to teach Marx? No how are you going to teach it. the Russian Revolution without teaching? Well, Marx? yeah, I I think it's secondary <laughs> school. Well, it's the same thing with critical race theory. I'm like, I didn't learn anything about slavery until I was in college. I mean, I didn't. I I, I read on my own. I read a lot of stuff on my own. We didn't learn about the Holocaust. We didn't learn about slavery. You didn't learn about the Holocaust? No, no. Okay, so I live in Georgia. Okay. Yeah. I live in Georgia. Colin, I have a question. Would you characterize Georgia as a conservative state, yes or no? I would generally, yes. Okay. Okay, fair enough. There's a reason I'm asking. In my state, there's actually a, I don't know what you call it, but a guideline or rule or something where you have to go. We have a, we have a Jewish museum in Atlanta. And if you're anywhere around there, like I, you know, there were kids as far away as Dalton, which Dalton is up near Tennessee. Okay. okay? <laughs> um, if you're anywhere around there, you have to go to it. It's like a, it's like a guideline from the state. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, I learned about the Holocaust and in, in, at every level of the, you know, not second grade, but. Well, yeah, I did because my uncles, my great uncles, but in school, <laughs> no. that started in the fourth grade. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so. I mean, well, and it, it depended too on a lot of our classes where we would read certain books and the other class wouldn't. I don't know why they did it this way, but like you might be in the class that read of mice and men, whereas the other class, different teacher, read 
Diary of Anne Frank or something like that. Mm. So we, I, there might have been years where you would have read Diary of Anne Frank, but we didn't read anything that everyone had to read. Like we didn't read um, Night uh, by by uh, Wiesel or anything like that or Anne Frank. I, I mean, I learned about it yeah. on my own because I like history. But you know, by the time I was in college, I, it's still. I mean, I we had a class. I went. I went to a college that did have an entire class on the Holocaust, but I didn't, I didn't take that class. So it's kind of my own reading. You, mm. you, you learn a little bit about it if you're in German history or, or uh, world war two history or, or those kinds mm. of things, but never as a kid, never ever did we learn what slavery was really like or what the mm. Holocaust was really like. And we didn't really talk about, I mean, you know, we didn't talk about it at home, those kinds of things. Uh, mm. If you maybe learned it on your own, that was fine. But w- it was a different time and a different play. I mean, it was a liberal, liberal Massachusetts. So I think I'm sure there are people who are probably, you know, it, it, there uh, in the communities who are Holocaust deniers or whatever. But like no one was vocal about that. I mean, you would yeah. have been, you, they would have thought you were a lunatic. But now it's like, you know. Yeah. It's accepted. Right. They're everywhere. Yeah. It's like, what did, um, what did I hear on the radio a little while ago, the, a, a week or so ago? The problem is that the guy in Boise can meet up with, can virtually meet up with the guy in Montana or the guy in Massachusetts. And so they can have a virtual connection sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just everywhere. It's right. You know, if we had containment theory, containment theory would not hold right now because it's just loose <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's just... What is what is containment theory? Well, in Vietnam, you know, the idea that we can contain communism if we if we defeat North Vietnam, hmm. then communism won't spread into Sacramento, California. You know, that was the dominant yeah. theory, uh, and that didn't Jeez. obviously uh, work out that way. Um, the, you know, Vietnam was united under communist rule and California was fine and we were, we were mostly fine, but, uh, you can't contain something that's already loose. And that's kind of what we're dealing with now. Just this crazy right wing conspiracies, whatever, you know, whatever Trumpism is just everywhere. I mean, I see it in my hometown. I grew up, it's like Trumpville now. And it's you grew shocking. up in Boston or? I grew up in Central Mass, so it's pretty rural, small town. It's like mm. five thousand people, and we we are, we are a you know reliably blue state, but mm. you know there's still no it's like everywhere else, crazy right? People. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Georgia's the same way. It's like it's fifty five forty five usually. It's like fifty five Republican, yeah. forty five Democrat, or vice versa. It's never an yeah. overwhelming majority of people. So my so my town my metro area rather um it scores in a lot of metrics the same as connecticut yeah but the rest of georgia would be somewhat lower than mississippi so that's what you're talking about <laughs> like, like the that liter- virginia that's yeah. literally what you're talking about right um like metro atlanta has an an economy now this is before the pandemic and so after the pandemic georgia has really taken off um but before the pandemic, Metro Atlanta had a um, an economy the size of Belgium. 
So imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, a it's a major force, mm. uh, economically now. I mean, you have all the Hollywood money that's come in mm. and it's funny now too. Like I'll see shows cause like Steve Harvey basically is like <laughs> half of daytime television now. And I think his production company's out of Atlanta. So like family feud is an Atlanta show now. And mm. I think it was always LA probably. Um, but you can kind of yeah. tell too, cause some of the people, you, you you get you're like yeah these are these are more like Georgia folks sometimes <laughs> like whatever that might mean I'm like uh, they they don't necessarily look like contestants you would see from California so I'm like I think this show is probably shot in Georgia because the production company logo has a peach or something and I looked it up and I think Steve I think he might be from Atlanta or that's where he lives now so uh, he lives here now yeah. Um... I saw like a thing that he did with uh, Jerry Seinfeld, and he talked about how he was from the Midwest. So, okay, originally, so yeah, okay, but yeah, I mean, Kevin Hart's from here originally. Like, um, his people are from here too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it's it's uh, yeah. it's amazing to see because I think that's you know if you are gonna try to flip things politically you kind of have to start with the economics because if there's there's no money and so yeah. you know i mean that's the reason why mississippi alabama they're poor states arkansas so they've just had this kind of oligarchy that's been ruling it since since day one because people mm. are just are just too poor to to change things in a lot of ways. and a lot of people like if you can do better you want to move like right yeah <laughs> No, I mean, I, I was in Arkansas for three years. I was like, I've had enough. You were the guy. So you were the first person. Well, first of all, you were the first guest on this podcast. But really? you were the. Yeah, you were my first the actual first guest. Okay. Yeah. All right. I thought. I had. Obviously, ladies and gentlemen, this is not. This is a recent show. But there was a show way back in time. <laughs> That never made the air. <laughs> you were just doing them solo. Is that what you're doing? I still, yeah. I, I, so, yeah, I did them solo, and I would appear on other shows to to boost my okay. podcast. And um, but I wanted to talk to you originally for the first show because I don't know. You said something on Twitter that was fascinating. <laughs> Well, thank I you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have I have my moments as I'm like a, I'm on like a broken clock. Uh, <laughs> I just I looked thought... up Steve Harvey. Sorry, Steve Harvey, West Virginia says yeah. he's from West Virginia originally. But go ahead. But no, anyway. So, but you had said something in the first show that I remember, which was that America was a nation of empty houses. Yeah. <laughs> Could you? And I thought. My, so my dream, one of my bucket list things, has always been, and it's a little item on the bucket list, believe me. But with this podcast, was to get you to come back and tell that story again. Well, I think I don't know when that was. I know it was. It was COVID was was raging because I. Well, I remember you talking about you had done a lot of research on COVID. And you're saying is there's there's the idea that it was a vascular disease 
And that mm. does kind of seem to be true because <laughs> it's not a cold. It's not the flu. If there's like long lasting, potentially dementia, brain damage, it's happening, uh, all mm. kinds of physical problems. It's a little bit more than, than a cold, obviously, as we've seen. Uh, so that, that stuck with me, but, um, I think probably at the time, cause I, I work in a rural area of Virginia and I, I drive through these small towns and, and counties that are huge geographically, but might only have like 20,000 people in them. So it's very rural. And I just see a lot of abandoned houses. Uh, I know it's rural Virginia. So the communities trend to not have a lot of money, but um, other parts of the country too, that I've been through, and this is more older houses, you know, people that walked away from after the recession or, or whatever. But what I hear in bigger cities like LA, New York, probably a lot of other bigger cities is that these big, uh, whoever they are, these enormously wealthy people that are buying buildings and keeping them empty to get the tax write off. So it's like, mm-hmm. we sort of have the countryside version of empty houses. And then we have the city version of empty houses that could be lived in, but aren't because somehow someone's sit, making money, keeping them empty. And I don't know how that works tax wise, but you know, you hear about oil barons in the mid East who own a huge apartment building in Manhattan and no one lives there. Um, so that's kind of screwed up, but yeah, I, I, I feel like a lot of things, I mean, people don't talk about it as much as they used to, but I think in a lot of ways, despite COVID and, and, and everything politically, economically, that last that last major recession, two thousand nine, that was huge. I think that shifted a lot of things, mm-hmm. and I think that's a lot of reason why we got Trump, and we've gotten this sort of alternate reality that people live in. I'm not I'm not going to dismiss it as economic anxiety because that's kind of an excuse for a lot of horrible things like racism and everything, but. I think in terms of shifting how the, the economy works and consolidation of wealth and thing, things like that, I think that that was a major turning point that we might never get out of in our lifetime in terms of the money going up to the 1%. Mm-hmm. People like Bezos and everybody becoming multi-billionaires, I think a lot of it stems from that. Well, and I think I've said this on Twitter. In fact, I know I have, but maybe you read it. Um, so accidentally (laughs) through well no i I did actually take steps to make this happen but i accidentally ended up covering what we now call the housing crash of 2008 yeah but the trick is i was covering it way before it was called that right yeah this was like oh six oh five oh six and the way I the way I've said on other people's podcasts and the way I've said on my show and just to my friends and whatever is I felt all the time with that. I felt like I had pulled up to a car wreck that happened two years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, because what I was writing about was ongoing. Like it was something it wasn't something that started it was something that had been continuing and of course i just thought it was atlanta i didn't think it was i never thought it was like the whole country yeah well i i remember watching 
uh, House Hunters. This is how I do my research. I watch House Hunters, but it was a couple of years after the crash and they would do a show in Atlanta mm. and people were getting houses for like $30,000 uh, in a, a, a nice house. I mean, not, you know, like a mansion, mm. but like mm. a nice suburban house with plenty of space and ceiling fans and all that stuff. And I'm like, what the hell happened in Atlanta? I mean, that's, that's just mind blowing. You didn't see that a lot of places. I know some places were so, it's so bottomed out and there's so much excessive housing. I think a lot, that was a lot of issue in Atlanta. It was just so many houses that they had to sell or rent or whatever um, mm. that they had built to accommodate this boom that you're talking about. I think other places it was a little different. I mean, the housing market did, did sink, but they didn't have as much housing to give away. Um, and this most recent uh, recession, it was not like that in Richmond. I mean, there was such a housing shortage as COVID was, was happening. Like you couldn't find anything for what you would have paid a few years ago. I mean, it was just, it was a real crunch and I don't know, has it changed a lot in Atlanta? I mean, can you still find these super cheap houses or is it kind of leveled off? So, okay. So we have Hollywood. Um, we also have, um, folks in uh folks from china um so china the thing you can do to make money because you're not allowed to own stocks in china is you can buy houses and you can it's like the greater fool theory right so you buy a house hoping you can sell it so we have that problem a lot we have like condos that nobody lives in we have um, you know a lot of houses actually a lot of single family houses were actually um, purchased by these people that just rent them out. So, and I mean, everybody's got to make a living and I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying that's what's going on. Yeah. Um, The other problem. So it's not a, it's a situation. The other situation with Atlanta is there's not really a barrier. Like there's not really a, like in Boston, you have the ocean, <laughs> right? There's right. not really a barrier. And Atlanta is kind of a postmodern city, like like LA is, where you know you might you could live here and never see downtown, right? Right. Like you you could live here your entire life and never actually see downtown. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. No, I mean, that's not New York. I mean, New York is just so big and yeah, you know, whatever borough you're in, uh, it's going to mm. feel like New York. But um, yeah, th- th- I think that's a lot of these Sunbelt cities like Houston, where mm. there's it's just so sprawling. And when I was in Baton Rouge, it was kind of the same deal, uh, much smaller. But but yeah, I, I kind of get that. And everything just seemed very new. Like if it was older than 1990 it felt like an antique you know um in baton rouge yeah (laughs) okay well well, the thing the thing you've got with that possibly is the hurricane oh sure i mean well i think too because it's a weird city in the sense of like there's kind of a historic ish downtown but it's nothing like new orleans i mean despite the floods the hurricanes in new orleans Mm. the french quarter's been there hasn't really changed a lot in a lot of respects in terms of just kind of how it looks generally but like baton rouge it's 
it's more of an Atlanta, like a lot of new construction probably in the eighties mm. and, and stuff, but you've got Exxon, which is the industrial center. And then you have like LSU, but like, it's, it's a weird, uh, you know, obviously very segregated city, like a lot of big cities are, but it didn't, it, nothing felt particularly old. I mean, LSU is one of the oldest things in the whole city and that's from like the 1930s really uh a lot of that lsu was started in the 30s that's weird pretty much it was a military academy around the time of the civil war and then huey long he he really took on lsu and built a lot of the buildings and the pool and and was into the football program and all those kind of things so kind of modern lsu certainly really kind of starts in the in the late 20s and 30s um but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. These kind of weird postmodern cities that I guess go through a different type of economic cycle to some degree uh, whenever there's a, a crisis. Richmond is it's a weird city in the sense of it does feel a lot older. Mm. The architecture is much older, more early 20th century, late 19th century. So we didn't they didn't go crazy building stuff. So it kind of it never really peaks and it never really troughs out like yeah it's it's it pretty much kind of holds together even when covid was bad and and businesses were shutting down it it didn't really get too bad it's it's not one of those mm. post-industrial horror stories like you know detroit or <laughs> whatever um so some ways it's it's never going to get huge but it's it's never going to get any get a get a whole lot smaller i don't think um but I just want to go back to Steve Harvey for one second. I peeked, yeah. my, I peeked at Wikipedia again. He did go to school in Ohio. He kind of moved to Ohio eventually. So you're right. He was he was a Midwestern guy too. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I kind of thought that. But I guess in the greater Appalachia, you know, <laughs> greater. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, so I I know you wanted to you wanted to talk about archives today. I wanted Did so you, want you work that? at the Robert E. Lee um archives, right? Well, the <laughs> the the business the corporate name is the Robert E. Lee Memorial Association, but most people just call it Stratford Hall because we're at where he grew where he was born and lived until he was the ripe okay. old age of three and then moved up to Alexandria and then Arlington. So uh, it it goes back to the 1730s, the house, and hasn't changed all that much, really. And the area hasn't, you know, speaking of rural Virginia, like you are back in time. I mean, they don't have tobacco and wheat like they used to, but I mean, it's just, it's, it's just countryside. And so Mm. that's good. You know, we don't get earthquakes or hurricanes, so the house has been maintained. But um, as you can imagine, it's a it's a tricky legacy with Robert E. Lee. Uh, yeah, and has changed a bit the last few years. We're trying to put more emphasis on the enslaved community and everything, but it's where it's where he was born, so it's always going to be this yeah. monument uh, to people in the lost cause and and uh all that and you know as much as change in richmond with the monuments taken down in charlottesville like this this house isn't going anywhere uh it's just a matter of you know keeping it funded but 
you know, how do you interpret that? That's the issue. So I work in the archive. So there's a big institutional archive, a lot of paper, mm. photographs, but I'm working on the digital side of things. So it's a little bit, mm. a little bit different, but surprise, surprise, a lot of Robert E. Lee letters because of the civil war, because that's, that's my field. So I like working on his correspondence and his family, his wife, his kids. He had mm. seven kids that all survived into adulthood. So He's writing a lot of, sometimes I think about, I'm like, you know, he's a general, but he, I guess he had enough downtime to write these letters. I, I can't imagine someone doing that today. Can you imagine a, a major general today, like writing three personal letters with well, all the stuff he had to do? I think, so let me preface this by saying this, because my answer is yes, I could believe it. Um, but here's how I could believe it. Right. So. Right now, I have 172 podcasts, 72 episodes Yeah, on the internet. I have more than that in the can. Okay. Um, people have time. Yeah. They, they don't think of it as that sometimes. Like, they don't think they do until something right. happens. But... The example I like to give is, well, the NFL is the national sport of this country. And what's that? Four hours? Right. On a Sunday? Yeah. No, I know. It's a matter of priorities, right? Well, and, and the only you know, way, it's the only way he could communicate to his family because mm -hmm, they couldn't mm -hmm. be in camp with them or didn't want to be. So you wrote a letter back then. And that's what's great about that time period is everyone's writing letters all the time. So... They're more yeah. documented than the vast majority of people living now. It's just gonna there's gonna be nothing for a lot of people. Right. You're not writing it down. You're not printing out your emails. It you'll just be dust in the wind. Well, I'm saving <laughs> a lot of people. Like I save all my episodes to a external yeah. hard drive. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean all that kind of stuff. Like yeah. we we had uh, the archive uh, was up for four years. I was working on it. And then there was this hack. So they lost a lot of material in the hack, but mm. I kept a lot of it on an external hard drive. And if, if I hadn't done that, the vast majority of the work would have been just been and totally you, gone. You know, you know, you need to replace those, right? Like, you know, for real, you need to replace those. Well, that too. Yeah. I should probably get a new, a new external hard drive soon. Yeah. Um, Cause I think it's about, probably six or seven years old so i think it goes back to like 2014 and it's mm. been great it's been great but yeah i mean i you know a lot of people they just put stuff in the cloud i'm not really one of those people i'm not but, a cloud uh, person <laughs> but there's only so much stuff you can keep physically i mean i i file filing cabinets and stuff like that so it's kind of like my work is blended over into my personal life but if you're doing research you're just going to have a ton of, you're just going to have a ton of crap in your house. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. And I'm going to nerd out for a second. Sure. On history. <laughs> um, have there been researchers that have like, I don't know, come in to see like, Hey, yeah, I'm more interested in him writing to his overseer about the, the food situation at the plantation or, whatever like writing to his wife about hey make sure this happens yeah right we don't you know get a saying? lot of, we don't get a lot of researchers where i am because we're 
we're geographically isolated and also we're not really a, a quote unquote research library. I mean, if people want to make an appointment and come in I mean, they can come in for free and they can be there as much as they want during uh, business hours, but it's very Lee centric. So if you're not really working on Lee or Virginia plantation culture, 18th century, 19th century, you know, it's a very kind of niche operation mm. that we have. So when we do get people, we've had some big people there. Uh, Alan Gelzo, who just published the, the Lee biography. I met him. I did a podcast with him. Uh, James Robertson, same deal. Uh, he was he was there during research. So we do get people occasionally that are they're you know pretty successful, but we just don't get the kind of foot traffic foot foot traffic of a place like. UVA or the Virginia Historical Society or, or mm. those kinds of big research oriented places. But um, certainly if you want to do something on Stratford, I mean, that's that's where you would go because we have a lot of things that are just totally untapped that people haven't really looked at. So you could do any of these things for the, for the rest of your life. Either I could work on Lee letters or just processing the collection uh, reprocessing it because there's a lot of stuff that's kind of rough that needs to be organized but it's the same issue everywhere every museum every archives it's, it's short staffed you have way more to do than you could ever really kind of get done hmm. um, and there's also kind of a problem with if, if a major archivist who's been there like 30 or 40 years leaves they leave with a lot of the knowledge and so you lose all that so uh, hmm. that happens sometimes in archival work like there was the person who was there before there were even computers, literally. <laughs> and so they have kind of either their own mental catalog or, you know, stuff is like in file, mm. you know, filing cabinets or, or whatever. It's kind of old school. So there have been places where I've come in and it's like, we, this, this totally needs to be overhauled, but it's just a lot of work. I mean, the stuff piles mm. up really quick. You could have a major collection for, let's say a politician, a congressman, he could dump 500 boxes on you in a day. And you're like, now what do we do with all this? You know? Um, so it's, it's an interesting job. I mean, I like it a lot. Um, Cause it's kind of where, where history is born is in the archive, but it's just, it's not a lucrative, <laughs> it's not a lucrative position to be in. And mm. hopefully you get job security cause it's a pretty low stress job, which is great. But, uh, you know, you usually have to pursue grant funding and, and things like that. So that's kind of where I'm at right now is yeah. trying to get something permanent that pays okay. I think, uh, I think was it Simon Shama who said that history, historians crave uh, kind of the calm life or something. And most of the time they get it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think if you're serious about reading and research, you have to have big blocks of time. Mm. So mm -hmm. that's been the sort of tradition, right? Is if you, you become a professor and if it's at a research one school, you're there to write books and articles. But if you don't get there, you have to teach. And the more you teach, usually the harder it is to publish. So it's hard to strike that balance, but mm. I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think you can have a life and also get scholarship done. 
but mm-hmm. some people are just machines. I don't know how, I mean, they'll have, you know, they're married, they have three kids, they're a department head and they're, they're publishing like a book every couple of years. I don't know how they do it. I guess they don't <laughs> sleep because it's time consuming to write a book. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I think, I think they do go for the quiet life. Um who who mm. now who said that again? Who's who's that person? Simon Shama. He's a he's not a trained historian, but he did the documentary about. He's done a lot of documentaries. He did one about the history of Britain. Okay. And he did one about the history of art. I think he started out as an art historian, who somehow stumbled into British history. I'm not sure how. Okay. But yeah. Yeah, I th- I think you do have to you can't really produce scholarship in a high stress situation and i guess some people they they do like deadlines but if you're talking years and years from beginning to end i mean you can't have too many interruptions and still keep that thread um and and the time will will pass much more quickly than you ever think it will and i mean i've been working on a book basically for 10 years and still not 100% 100% done. It's coming out this year, but I mean, you look back, you're like, holy shit, 10 years? I mean... What's the book? <laughs> it's on Johnny Cash, and oh. kind of has snapshots of him doing things in Arkansas. So growing up there, going back to do concerts and stuff. Kind of my twist, my Arkansas twist on it. Because I started in Arkansas when I was working in the archive there, and I was like, wow, they have some really cool stuff here on Johnny Cash. So kind of wanted to get it out in the world and just kind of started huh. snowballing and kind of started going off in different directions. So it just, you know, can, we'll keep going. And you, at some point you just have to say enough and I've written enough and we just need to <laughs> submit this somewhere. But, you know, the peer yeah. review itself can take a couple of years and sometimes it's sitting around, nothing's happening for like eight or nine months. And this experience mm. has been pretty good. I can't, can't complain about the experience of, of getting this book published through uh university of arkansas press but it, it still is just it's a long it's a long drawn out thing and when you're not like going to get tenure or something this is purely you're doing it for the sake of doing it you're not going to make any money you're not going to get tenure so you better be dedicated to what you're doing because <laughs> didn't you write another book you wrote another book yeah this first one was civil war marching masters so that was about the confederate army and slavery and hmm. that's been out since 2014 uh so i guess be, you know between books it's it's been eight years which is i guess not that long of a time between books but they kind of overlapped i was starting johnny cash and was finishing up the first book and Huh. I have other things in in mind, but it, it, it's scary to think about it. But like when you hit your mid forties, you're like, if it's going to take 10 years, I got to, I got to choose this pretty carefully because I'm not going to be able to write, you know, five more books. It's maybe yeah. a couple more. Well, I mean, okay. How about, I, I love telling people this. I love, I love, um, I love blowing people's minds. Um, so the thing that I, I like saying is, so I talked to a fella, um, who did, who works in Alzheimer's research and he works in, he's working on CRISPR technology. So there's a lot of things you can apply to that. 
And he said, like, in five years, they're going to take a lot of killers off the table. A lot of what? A lot of a lot of killers, a lot of diseases oh, oh, off okay. the table. Yeah. And he said, like, COVID has really opened that up. Like, research to, to fix COVID or to, to treat COVID and to the vaccine has really opened that up. So, well, I hope I mean, so. <laughs> the world's <laughs> going to be different. I hope so. I mean, um, yeah. No, I mean, just well, just the fact that we got a vaccine in a year when I think the fastest a vaccine ever been created was like four years in human history, four years. So we got in in one. And so that is certainly a testament to the power of the researchers. And yeah, I mean, we have all kinds of great technology and great medicine. A lot of it is just distributing it because we're still mm-hmm. facing this problem of people who can't get the help that they need. And if we're going to be dealing with COVID for the rest of our lives, there are going to be a lot of problems that come with that. And <laughs> I think as climate change yeah. gets, as climate change gets worse, there's going to be more things to deal with too. Cause again, we're, we're going to be in like a tropical environment kind of, you know what I mean? Well, so getting back to my thing about my spiel about Atlanta, I feel like I need to work for the Atlanta chamber of commerce with this podcast here. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, so Atlanta doesn't um, like we don't we get hurt we get tornadoes, and by the time hurricanes get to us, they're basically glorified storms. Like they're basically glorified, you know, right thunderstorms, pretty much. But we don't get earthquakes. We don't get really, but we don't get like Sandy. <laughs> like Sandy right, hit New right. York like that. My theory is we're gonna have like a lot of climate refugees. That's my theory. Like Atlanta's yeah. gonna have a a load of climate refugees really soon. Yeah, that could be. I mean, I think it's the same deal in Richmond. Like where we're on that ninety five route, so you could just take ninety five down Atlanta. So we're kind of up. We're not mountains but we're not the tidewater either so like yeah we don't get hurricanes we don't get earthquakes when it does flood it can be bad but it's nothing catastrophic so it's a big i mean it's a big city but it could be a lot bigger so yeah if we we could end up taking on people from virginia beach or i don't know dc whatever i mean people that might move because it's just the low-lying areas are inhospitable i mean it's happening in louisiana right now like um Mm. lake charles louisiana which is right on it's had like multiple hurricanes the last few years it's basically uninsured you can't get insurance there now because of the storms so (laughs) we're gonna start seeing places that you know there still might be people like you know people down the florida keys or whatever they'll they'll be fishing or tourists or or whatever there'll always kind of be people there be people there but you can't I think we still have this tendency to think of everything as like a cold war community. Like it's going to be middle-class and we'll have schools and all this other stuff. And it's like, we just can't do that everywhere. It's just not going to be feasible. So certain places we're going to have to just sort of, yeah, retreat from. And it seems like Atlanta is well-situated. I don't know how the, is the infrastructure there pretty good? I'm guessing there's a lot of traffic, but well, okay. So, so Atlanta, I wrote this in a paper uh, years ago, and I'm going to repeat it. 
Um, one of my followers on Twitter is a professor of mine, so shout out to you if you remember this, but you probably don't, but here it is. I say Atlanta is both a collection of motley farming villages and like the ninth largest metro area in northern North America, okay? Like it's both those things. So you yeah. have a lot of these like like farming villages that became honestly like big places like on yeah. on their own like just big places um but you also Atlanta is really conservative so or it used to be so you still have people that um don't think climate change is real um it also like there was a 20 or there was like a 20 year period i think where we get where we gained like 2 or 3 million people <laughs> yeah like, there was yeah. a 20 year period so the answer the answer your question um the infrastructure needs a lot needs work but it doesn't need a lot a lot of work um the thing we need to do is is come into the idea that people who were taking mass transit um probably are not going to go back to that until covid gets uh sorted out and i don't know how long that's gonna be yeah um yeah i i don't even know how like certain cities in this country have been functioning i mean new york city it's so crowded i don't know why covid wasn't even worse than it was and it was pretty bad well but... so i'm a guy who talks to a lot of people about covid and yeah so ten full hat time uh I'm sorry, that was me with my southern accent. Uh tinfoil hat time. Sure. Uh it is worse than people okay. It's a lot worse. Because first of all, I've talked to people that oh, so and so died of a heart attack. Well, you know that's COVID, right? Because they were thirty four years old. No, it wasn't. Yes it was. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you've got people that so you've got doctors that aren't telling people they have COVID. Okay. So okay, let me do it like this. In order to, so Colin, in order to die of COVID, you have to have insurance. Okay? You have to have the wherewithal to go to the hospital in the first place. Like the, the consciousness to do that. You also have to have a doctor who thinks you could have died of COVID. Right? See? You see what I'm well, saying? Well, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I Well, I think a lot of people, I mean, if you just look at the, the total numbers of COVID, how much higher those numbers really should be because of all the people that have either had it and they never tested positive or maybe had it before you could even get tested. I mean, I, I, I'll never know, but I think mm. I maybe did have it before anyone. This is like March, February, 2020. So like no one was getting a test. There certainly was no vaccine. And I had a really weird cold who that might've been just a weird virus, but now yeah. knowing what I know about it and how I felt, uh, it was really weird. So yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying, and I mean, 
you know, <laughs> New York City, it's it's sort of just unstoppable force anyway. I mean, what would it take mm. for them to really shut the city down? I mean, they're just going to the have bubonic to plague. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man just knocking buildings over. Even then, you know, people were outside like, "Hey, look at that!" Um, so, I'm, I'm on the one hand amazed at the resiliency of of certain cities and the people that can lead anything, even approaching a, a normal life in a place like New York. Um, but that's an exception. I mean, it's so it's so dense and so crowded. Other cities that haven't had to deal with the, the same kind of issues. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, a place like Atlanta with public transportation, people aren't going to take the bus, and then the buses are having trouble financially. Uh, here, even before COVID, we were seeing a demographic change of the, the city becoming a majority white city, which it hadn't been for a long time. And so that carries with it different politics, uh, different times of planning in terms of, of economics and everything. Um, so COVID's kind of complicated everything, but um, it's interesting to see how the, all these these cities have dealt with this, this catastrophe. Because I don't know how many people died in New York City. I mean, probably tens of thousands, right? I mean... I, I don't know either, but I do know that there was a... So I've had my mind changed about covid in a, in a lot of ways by not by talking to americans but by talking to asians people in asia right like covid is never going to go away like it's we need to be okay with the idea that covid's never going away yeah like <laughs> And we also, I think that means we need to build more hospitals and we need to train more doctors and nurses and like that. Because even if you're just going off of the people who died of COVID, like that some doctor wrote down, you died of COVID, you're talking about a cancer-sized killer. So, like for all of cancer. So, you know. Yeah. Pl- I mean, yeah. Well, they've, <laughs> you know, they've, normalized wearing masks in in asian countries the mm. way that we did not and i i look it's it, it was you notice the stuff more now because like i'm i've been going back through old episodes of anthony bourdain's show and he he was in mm. vietnam 2013 or 2014 whenever that was and it wasn't everyone was wearing a mask but there were people wearing masks i don't know if it was because of pollution or just they didn't want to get sick but like we've never been that way unless there's a a pandemic. <laughs> so I think they have a, obviously a much different attitude than we do. We, we, we frame everything as like an assault on your Liberty. If you have to be inconvenienced. And I don't think they think that way necessarily. I'm sure there are a lot of people like that. Uh, you know, China, obviously different issue. They, they want to have a COVID zero policy, which is problematic because that's it's not totalitarian. Possible. It's totalitarian too. Uh, so yeah, it, that that is they really are using that to control people i mean that's honestly what that is yeah yeah and you can't i don't think you can you just can't completely eradicate it from a place with 1.3 billion people or however many people are in china now it's like that's just not going to happen um and they're gonna cook the books anyway let's say they get down to zero supposedly like who would believe that would you really believe that that's what they said (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, I, I think we're going to have to manage our expectations and, and I'll also maybe do some things just differently. Like no one wants to really change. I'm not even talking individual behavior, but like institutional behavior. Like if we're going to go through this horrendous cycle every winter of a million cases a day or whatever at its peak, maybe we don't need to have the kids in the school in January and February and we need to shift the school year or something, you know, things like that. But good luck getting that passed because people just don't want to change it. Even if it's irrational. Well, why, why not? (laughs) Well, here's the other thought, like, and you and I both know this because we're history people, right? So forever is a long time. Okay. Yeah. So think back to earlier on, we talked about how 2008, you can now start to see some of the, some of the longer effects of that. Yeah. Think back, like when 2008 happened, I straight up remember people not even thinking it was real. Like I, right. I remember being able to go to different parts of town and like, they don't even think this is real, but here's the thing. They also can't see it. Like they don't see the effects of it. Right. So like, but now if you go back and now, oh yeah, no, it happened. I wonder if 10 years from now, we're going to be saying sort of the same thing about COVID. Well, and it's weird too. I mean, this is a whole nother cultural issue, but like since people are, are pretty much dying in hospitals, you don't really see it happening and you can't because they I won't said that into the room on Twitter. <laughs> and so it's a sort of yeah. secretive carnage um, that, you know, the, it is to some extent in the news and in the media of, of the hospitals and stuff like that. But it's, it, it is easy for, it's easier for people to deny it's happening if they don't see it. I mean, exactly. If it's not zombie apocalypse, it's not, you know, troops rolling through through your neighborhood in tanks. It's like, no, that's not really happening. They're not really in the hospital because that's all our our, our, our culture hides death away until unless, you know, you go to a funeral or something like that. That's one way to process it. But I think like these other cultures, more maybe third world country third world cultures are better at processing that than we are because they have a, a day of the dead in Mexico or another, you know, ho- you know, not holiday, but like a day of remembrance like that in certain cultures, not war related here. We're, we're great at the war remembrance. We love doing that, but just sort of a general, I mean, have you heard anything like that? Like a day of remembrance for COVID victims, like a national day or like just people doing something like uh, everyone I'll go one better. I'll go one better. I said this I said this to my uh to my parents when I was back in the good old days when I was doing a a podcast on the Spanish flu. Yeah. I've never been to a anywhere. We used to when I was a kid, we used to travel and go to every memorial, every everything east of the Mississippi, right? Blah blah blah. I've never seen a single solitary. These are the people who died of the Spanish flu in this town. Yeah. Memorial. Never. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's weird how we deal with the disasters because every other disaster, 
you see yeah. something if it's a flood or earthquake you will see the more room to deny that they're ever going to die so we put away older people in homes we kind of forget about them we don't visit them or whatever because it's not unusual to live to a 90 or 100 now um, but this is also kind of i think bled into this insanity with covid it's it's like people deny that all of these people are dying from a horrible disease because it's new and you can't prove it to me that it's actually happening <laughs> until they're in the hospital. So here's something that, okay. So I'm not a professional historian, but I consider myself a historian, right? Yeah. So, but here's something that COVID showed me. We don't live on farms. A lot of us, like we don't live on farms. A lot of us. Right. So, you're not as aware of things like, oh, hey, don't put the pigs there. Right? Right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, hey, oh, hey, don't do that with the chicken. Okay, you, okay, we got to wash. <laughs> yeah, you're not seeing the natural life cycle play itself out with. But you're also very yeah. much ignorant of what a virus even is. Right. Right? Like, my grandparents would not, my rural grandparents would probably not have thought that COVID was transmissible via antenna waves. Okay? Just saying. A lot of people. Right, right. Common sense. Common sense people. Yeah. A lot of people I've heard from think that 5G causes COVID. (laughs) Just saying. Just say right, right. (laughs) Yeah, no. I on the one hand, they're the same people that are denying it. On the other hand, it's transmiss transmissible in these odd ways. uh, Right. Completely unscientific, and no, I, I, you know, I, I think that's that's a huge issue in our culture is going from you know rural to industrial to post-industrial and post-internet. People just are not rooted, literally rooted to the soil the way they used to. And you don't have to see anything killed to make your meal. Um, I mean, imagine having to do that every time you ate something or, or every. Not every time, but almost. <laughs> not every, you know, a lot. It was slaughtering time. It'd be like, holy shit. Um, so no, I mean, there's definitely been that shift. And yeah. there's this book I have not. Have you ever read The Denial of Death? No, but I'm going to now. I think I have to. Yeah, because I've heard about it. And I think it's probably related to a lot of these things that we're talking about. And got to be how we as a culture. It's 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 so strange because we're so conscious about, you know, we fight a war. We don't want to lose one soldier, you know, one casualty is too many. But then we have a pandemic and people are like, eh, whatever. I'm going to go out to dinner and you know, maybe give it to someone or get it from someone else. But how many millions of people, like seriously, how many, how many millions of people got it and died and just never went to a doctor for it? Yeah. Because they couldn't or because I've talked to a lot of people and I've heard a lot of stories about so-and-so dying of a heart attack or, or such and such. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people that 
in the last that maybe have died in the last couple of years and it's it's weird how how often you don't really know how people died you'll see you know obituary or whatever and if it's from yeah. 2020 if it's in 2020 i'm like yeah it might have been covid so let me ask you a question i asked you this um jesus almost two years ago now or not quite but almost uh, how do you think society's going to change because of covid well that's that's a good question um i mean i think we're seeing a lot of political instability from this and we have a a real struggle now to you know, contain this crazy right-wing conspiracy theory movement that I mean, we had an insurrection um in, in like, canada uh, in january well now yeah in canada now we had our own um january yeah. 6 so that might be a way of life now is, is more, more radicalism uh, because what we need to do is we need to focus on better healthcare, more healthcare, but that's going to be difficult if we have radical extremists who don't want it. Um, so I think it's going to be politically shaky and I mm. mean, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to just think it's, it's going to work it's, itself out somehow um but it, but it could get worse before it gets better and and people mm. throw down throw around the idea of a of a civil war i don't know what that would look like that's worst case scenario See, uh, but we need political change we need political change for sure you work around the civil war um yeah so can you tell uh, can you tell people um how you i mean <laughs> Hate to put you on the spot, but I'm gonna. Sure. Uh, sure. How did the Civil War actually like? What What are some things you see today that echo the Civil War in terms of the antebellum period? Sure. Well, I I think I mean obviously we're not dealing with slavery now, but I think we are dealing with a lot of racial uh, hmm. baggage and that we're seeing a political divide that's it's not necessarily along racial lines, but let's face it. I mean, the conservative element in this country is overwhelmingly white. So there's a definite racial component to that, that people want to take away voting rights that want to punch down in whatever way they can and, and hold on to power. However, they need to do that. Um, so I think there's a major racial component to it. I think the, the major difference is that it's not sectional now per se. Like we were talking earlier, how mm. there's sort of these, these factions everywhere. So it's not going to be like the North versus the South. Although mm -mm. I think, you know, Trumpism is strongest in the, the South and the Midwest and, and uh, the mountain regions and stuff like that. But uh, so we're not going to see that sectional divide, but I, I, it's certainly possible that, there could be a major, major conflict. I don't know what that would look like. I think, you know, we got, we, we, we had a, a rehearsal for this on January 6th. So it's something that, that could happen and it could happen mm. seemingly any day, any week. Um, mm. But it's not going to be huge armies fighting at Gettysburg. It's going to be more like Northern Ireland or maybe like uh, Syria where it's sort of a long drawn out low level sometimes. And then 
more heightened. Other, I don't know. I mean, I, it, I don't want to like necessarily go down that rabbit hole because maybe See, it's just it's ridiculous, but it could happen. I think here's now color me an optimist if you must, but here's what I think. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I think we're in a content revolution. We really are. Um, and actually, one of the missions of my podcast is to do these kind of oral history interviews with people I like to call on the shop floor of Gutenberg's press. You know, like, yeah. to me, like, this is Gutenberg's press. This thing I've got in front of me. And I'm going to make some edits and throw it out in the universe and whatever. Um, but, like, tonight I'm going to talk to a CEO up in Canada. Um, for example, who found me somehow. Okay. I think there's going to be this new economy that happens. And I think that's going to mean that, because I talk to a lot of people that are feel like they're trapped in cities, right? They're trapped in cities because of their job or because of the high-speed internet or whatever. It's not because of the amenities, right? It's their... They might have gone. They might have gone there initially for the amenities, but now they want to. They want to get out, but they need. They need their job, right? Yeah. But I really think if you can move these people into the countryside and have them keep their jobs and whatever, I really, honestly think that's going to help. Honestly. Yeah. Well, because. Uh yeah, a lot of it's things gonna, need to change. Because it's going to broaden the tax base and get the schools better. I, I see it's going to help. But you, if if nothing changes, I honestly think something's going to pop off. But I do think something's going to change. I I can see it. <laughs> well, know? we as as bad as things have been politically, we we do seem to you know, pull back from the brink, just, even just barely. I mean, January 6th was, was bad, but it could have been worse. And mm. we did have a new president and he's stable, uh, fairly stable. So we're, 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 we've kind of got a semblance of the status quo, but, um, and I don't want to get super political, but I think if things are really going to change politically, the, the Republican party needs to, grow a conscience and say enough is enough because this is is crazy and it could get a lot worse and it's not going to happen on the democrat like democrats can say whatever they want it needs to happen on the republican side well and but i think what's going to happen before that that's what i'm saying what's going to happen before that is you've got to give people a pathway to prosperity in the new world definitely yeah you've got to do that and here's the rub though that's not going to come from the government okay because this is moving faster than the government can this is you know this situation is moving lightning speed like i'll give you an example okay i'll give you an example that i think about every single day so my origin story in my podcast Right. That was a synapse firing in the brain in October of 19, okay, 2019. 
And I waited and waited and waited because I didn't think it could. I who would listen to me, right? Who's going to listen to me? I I, I would say, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then I don't know. Like I, I put it out, and I remember the, like that was March, and I remember the first day, I had ten listens, that first day, and I hit the moon. Yeah, it's it, cool. It's cool it, when you first you know, realize people are listening. Yeah. But so the thing is, like, this moves this moves at the speed of thought. This new economy moves at the speed of thought. Okay? And government can't work like that. No, that's that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. yeah no I mean I I try to I try to stay optimistic and I mean I have kids and stuff like that but there there's some days it just feels like the mm. the bottom is, is is truly falling out of of everything and then mm. out of weeks or or months where it's it's a little better. Um. So I don't know. I mean, even you know, it, it you know as a historian. I know more about the past than the future, obviously, and I, I try to figure out what's going on in the present. Uh, I, I just try to help, I try to try to remain confident that kind of. I mean, I think at at the at this country at its core, as messed up as it is, does kind of want to see, seek stability, even if it's just for economic reasons. That the economic mm-hmm. reasons will hold things together politically because if things are chaos in chaos we no one's going to make any money i mean some people will always will but like we can't move <laughs> forward economically if politically it's just a complete disaster um so exactly hopefully even if it's yeah. just self-interest even if it's just capitalism somehow saves us like that's great but we can't have <laughs> we can't have constant fear and chaos which is what it's felt like for about six years now save us capitalism because <laughs> it's not we're not going to come we're not going to become a, a socialist country i mean just forget about it i mean yeah. we're lucky if we get any sort of government programs in addition to what we already have i mean it's just not it's just not in our nature as a country and i would love some more socialism but despite what people on the right say it we're not ever going to get there this is not going to happen as long as there are ranches for people to have cattle and mountains for people to build a house and live in isolation that individualist streak is just going to dominate and it's out of control right now and so i've got rain back in and i've got news for you and this is yeah. what i've got news for you high-speed internet if they can figure out a way to take that to the sticks yeah we're not this is not going to become the the socialist utopia air quotes utopia that some people thought it was no 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 because if they can figure out how to take the internet to the sticks you know yeah well we definitely need to get out of this cold war (laughs) mentality of like yeah you get you you commute you drive your car everywhere you go into the office and even if it's counterproductive that's what you Mm. do like if people can work from home let them work from home. They don't want to drive. Don't make them drive. Like, mm. cause yeah. the, we have a lot of threats right now. And even if we deal with the political threat of just 
civil war and craziness, we have to deal with the climate threat and all these other things. So I, I'm just, you know, at the very small levels, people need to, to change their thinking. And yeah, I mean, the internet could be a great thing in certain communities, but as they are right now, a lot of them, I drive through them all the time. There's nothing going on and there's no jobs. So something needs to change there. Yeah. All right, Colin. We've been at this for an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, this uh, this was fun. This um, was great. I, I enjoyed this talk, and <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's time for lunch. So hey, good, tell good you what, I, I'm gonna go. I always go for a po- pre podcast walk. Now I'm gonna go for a post podcast walk. There you go. Yeah, but I'm gonna open it up an invitation to you. Okay. When your book comes out, I want you to come on. Okay. Yeah, talk I'd love to. It. Because I love Johnny be, Cash. Yeah, I think everyone does. So I've 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 got a good a good uh, audience there, and uh, yeah, that might be this late later in the summer. So, all right, I, I'd love to um, do that. All right, Colin, why don't you tell? Okay, you want to tell us about websites you are a part of or whatever? Well, or? I'm on Twitter at Colony Woodward. I I'm on Twitter fairly often. So if anyone wants to get in contact with me there. You can DM me. I also have a website, colonywoodward.com, which I'm not doing a whole lot on usually, but that that's out there. And they can check out my my book, Marching Masters, which is on Amazon. And the Johnny Cash book should be out in July. So, I'll And I tell you what, if you email me links to any or all of that, I'm going to put it in the description for you. Okay, great. Appreciate all right, everybody. It. Uh, This has been Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. And I'm going to say, like I always say, I'm having a great day and I hope you are too. All right, everybody. All right. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, hang on. Hang on one second. Make sure sure we get it.